welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. All right, so last episode, we talked about Godzilla, the original. And since then, the remake has... Or would you call it a remake, I guess, at this point? I mean, is it, the, is, is the it like, considered a remake? Or is it just like a new Godzilla movie? Because, I mean, it's been done so many times. It's, it's not... It, but, well, I haven't seen it. You saw it, though. I did. I saw it yesterday. Would you say that it's a remake of the original? In that the character of Godzilla is what the character of Godzilla was. Or they didn't do much changing there. Not even... I mean, physically, he's spruced up with all the latest like technological know-how, visual effects-wise. Mm-hmm. But he's pretty much the same. Yeah. Uh, which I liked. Uh, I didn't yeah, I mean, based on the images that I've seen, he looks pretty faithful. He looks like Godzilla, as opposed yeah, to like, and, the 98 version where he looked more like a T-Rex. Or and for a good portion of the movie, not a good portion, I didn't, I didn't like, I'm not good with like telling, like when I'm watching a movie for the first time in theaters, I can usually tell like, uh, oh, here's like maybe the end of the first act or something like that. But I can't be like, oh, we're like 30 minutes in or mm-hmm. oh, we're 45 uh, it felt like a while into the movie when I finally was like, oh, there's Godzilla. Because for a while, there's this other monster that I thought they were trying to pass off as Godzilla. And I'm like, fuck no. Why does Godzilla have six legs and wings? What the fuck is going on in this movie? And I was like pissed. And then all of a sudden, like Godzilla, Godzilla shows up. And I'm like, okay, here we go. So, okay, that's news to me that there are other monsters i don't think it's a spoiler because it is less than halfway into the movie and it it, it mm-hmm. yeah it i i got excited this is one of those movies in which godzilla fights another monster that's i mean that's pretty sweet because that's one thing that i was kind of thinking like you know they're they're starting a new franchise or they just recently announced that there is good they are going ahead with a sequel because mm-hmm. this new godzilla movie made a monster load of money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> monster load. Yeah, I don't... Um, <laughs> <all right. laughs> yeah, so I figured, like, you know, okay, this first one, they gotta reintroduce Godzilla and for, for the new modern age, and it's probably not gonna be a lot of room or time for any other monster. But that's that's cool. I'm glad that they uh, that they worked in... I mean, well, they Something had else. they had too much time. <laughs> How long was the movie? Had, well, no, the movie. I mean, the movie wasn't a long movie. It was less than, or no, I think it was just it was one hundred twenty something minutes. Mm. And like the end credits could have been like five minutes or something. So I don't know. It's roughly two hours, but it was just the feeling I got when like Godzilla was like getting up out of the water and starting to kick some ass was just like, yes. And mm-hmm. I got excited, but you just have to slog through so much. Not that. So just get like to, any other like, Godzilla movie. I don't care about, all right, well in the commercial, you know, you see some of the like human actors and you know, I was in the impression like, Oh, Brian Cranston's going to be our hero. Cause he's like all over the commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's, like, in early parts of the movie. The opening credits were... Well, the opening credits were really frustrating for a, a couple of reasons. One was really interesting, and, like, it, I think it'll pay off more 
when it's out on like Blu-ray and DVD, the screen will like fill up with text and then like um, these sort of like redacted marks will show up. Uh, like crossing out a bunch of lines and the only things left are like the names of yeah 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 and like so i started to like try and read each thing that they were like redacting and i'm like i really want to know more about that Mm. and like you get to like in the film itself you get to know a little bit about the past like there were these atomic tests done in 1954 which Mm -hmm. awakened something right and i like that it was 1954 although that was also the year that i think the bikini atoll tests Mm -hmm. were so but you know it's serendipitous and it's like you know it makes sense. Yeah, that's something that was in the in the trailer. They they talked about some of that, like okay, you know, oh, they weren't tests; they were trying to like kill something or yeah. do something. But also, like, just the 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 list, the cast list was like, oh, Brian Cranston, Juliette Binoche, they've they're going all out here, and then Julia Binoche, Binoche, whatever, Binoche, 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 whatever. I don't care. That great actress. Who cares? She dies right off the bat. Spoilers. Is it a spoiler if something happens in the opening scene of a movie? Yeah. Because Uh, you're not expecting it to happen. If you're not expecting it to happen, now I'm expecting it to happen. The only reason you you would not be expecting it to happen is because they're a big star. Yeah. So that makes it a spoiler. But... Well, it pissed me off. I'm sorry, but like, if the... there was a movie that had like, you know, I don't know, like Matt Damon in it, and you're going in thinking like, oh, Matt Damon's in this movie, and then he dies in like the first in the first scene. That's that's still a spoiler. It doesn't matter when it happens in the movie. It's just like you're changing the expectations of somebody going in. Okay. So now, like going in, like my expectations are now changed. I will I will not have the same experience you had going in fresh-faced well you might have a better experience than me i don't know because <laughs> it just pissed me off because <laughs> she doesn't seem like that caliber of star like i think people respect her as an actress and she's a star but like you know you mentioned matt damon and it's like oh he's the the born guy mm-hmm. and like jason Bourne, um and he's in like all those he's a big star right he's in a bunch of oh, big yeah, movie, I mean, like, like oceans yeah, movies and for stuff. sure yeah matt all damon right. is, is a big star but she, I mean, she did the blue from the Three Colors trilogy and uh, Cachet and The English Patient. But, like, I feel like it's not a twist. It's just annoying. Because like, if it had been, like, a big star, like Matt Damon or, like, or George Clooney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, the movie starts off and it's like, oh, Brian Cranston and George Clooney are a married couple. Like, you don't, you think that's going to keep going for the rest of the movie, but <laughs> I want to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but the actual stars of the movie, well, there, it's like, right, there's also uh, Ken Watanabe, who I don't know why I know him, but I know that name. And I think he's supposed to be in a new Gus Van Sant movie. Yeah, it seems like he's kind of like Hollywood's go-to Japanese actor. He plays a guy named Dr. Serizawa. Oh. Yeah. And his sidekick basically is uh sally hawkins from blue jasmine and they just kind of pop in from time to time and are just like here's some exposition for you and then they go away for a while and they pop back in and Mm. here's some and then but like so our main people that we follow are um this guy the main guy i had no idea who the hell he was but i get he's in the kick-ass movies and um the recent anna karenina movie 
and some other big things I don't remember. And the main girl is the Olsen twins' sister. Who, Elizabeth Olsen. Yeah. And it's weird because she looks exactly like them, but Different. human. Because <laughs> they've, like, it devolved into this weird, like, whatever they're going on with that. And they, I, she I just seems I like a normal... Seen them recently. Yeah. I, I yeah, Elizabeth know. Olsen, she's kind of like, uh, her star is on the rise. Okay. She's uh, been cast in Avengers 2 as Scarlet Witch. Because I'm sitting there thinking, like, oh, they couldn't afford the real Olsen, so they got this girl. <laughs> but she's been in, like, a bunch of stuff. Yeah, like, I saw right. her in um, a movie called, I think it's called Silent House. It's a horror movie. And, uh, yeah, I mean, she was really good in it. I mean, the movie, okay. you know, kind of is like, eh, you know, it has some issues. But it's actually, like, yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. I liked it more than Kayla did. She hated it. I couldn't really tell how she was in this movie because her character was confusing to me. Hmm. I mean, she did okay. Everyone, there were no like standout crappy performances or anything like that. And it is a very character-driven movie. You're following the characters, which you know that. I feel like it's one of those like, be careful what you wish for, you might just get it type things because that's I I look for that right where you're always like, but when these I, characters <laughs> are two dimensional, yeah, and then like I get excited. Why don't I care? Like, why don't we care about these people? And then sometimes you like, yeah, you know, you find these movies where like they are character driven. You're like, you're like, yes, this is why can't they all be like this? And it's just like that's not what I'm looking for with Godzilla. I want to see guts. There was not enough Godzilla, damn right, it. Right. And maybe if there had been more Godzilla, the time he was on screen wouldn't have been so exciting, but. I think it would have been like if they didn't overdo it or anything. Just well, I mean, I just feel like there wasn't it, enough. Comparing it back to the original, I mean, that's basically how the original is. I mean, we spend, but we so know much who Godzilla is now. That's the difference between now and 1954. Right? Like there, it is a mystery, and they're introducing this character. Everybody going to the theater now. But is the like, movie is still very effective, even knowing like who and what Godzilla is. Like you watch that original movie, and it's still engrossing and you know. right. For, but we. We know that it was 1954. We we mm-hmm. don't think it came out like last week. You go, you're watching a movie that's introducing a character, and you know it's introducing a character, and like you can enjoy that mystery. But it just seems like a frustrating waste of time mm-hmm. for a movie to do that 60 years after, and like everybody knows. Yeah, I guess that is true because I mean it is like, I mean how many versions of Godzilla have we seen over the years? There's like dozens of Godzilla movies and. You know, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Just cut the bullshit, give us Godzilla. And it's it's focused so much on, like, people just making these stupid decisions. And there were some, like, interesting action sequences. Like, if you were ever, if you ever watched the movie Stand By Me, uh, have you seen Stand By Me? No. But... <gasps> I think I saw some of it, like, a long time ago when I was a that's, kid. That's one of those, like, perennial, like, 80s movies. Yeah, that, I like... know. I mean, it, like, I have vague recollections of it have you seen the scene with the train the train scene yes okay no if you've ever seen that scene yeah and uh we're like man i wonder what that scene would be like if the train was on fire godzilla's for you because <laughs> i feel like some one of the screenwriters or the director or somebody watched stand by me and was like oh my god what if it was on fire <laughs> Because it's that's yeah. all I could think of during that scene. And so overall, though, I mean, what what are how did you enjoy the movie? 
I don't know. I, I, I really liked the character of Godzilla, and I wanted more of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. I think uh, there was sort of a cop-out where we were supposed... There was a scene where we had been expecting to see two monsters having sex, and they didn't. Whoa. Godzilla gets it on? I'm not going to answer that question. Well, no, that, um, that is, now I'm intrigued. Uh, there's some parts where, like... All right, getting back to Elizabeth Olsen. <laughs> uh, like, no, I'm her... scared. <laughs> no, this is completely unrelated to monster sex. Do you sex. consider her to be a monster? <laughs> well, and Olsen. Completely unrelated to the, what I just said about monster sex. Uh, there's, this, there's this shot where, like... Well, this scene where she sees something in front of her. So she starts running, like, backwards, sort of. Because she, she had been running away from destruction behind her, and then she sees more destruction in front of her, so she starts running backwards. And she's running at a really weird angle and at a really weird, like, pace. And yeah, you know, if, you, if you're running one way and then you start to back up and run the other way, you know, that can be awkward. But then the camera moves slightly, and you realize the only reason she's walk, she's or she's running at that angle and that pace is so that they can like get this other thing behind her in frame. Hmm. And it is it just that really bugged me. It's like it was the it, like you can you can see through the blocking. It rang false, and they just wanted to get this cool shot, mm-hmm. which because of her, well, not because of her, but because of what she was doing, which might not necessarily be because of her. Uh, it just it didn't turn out to be a cool shot. It just turned out to be like mm-hmm. horrible. Well, aside from all like the nitpicking stuff, like how would you stack this up to is that nitpicking? The I mean, I like I'm I just want to sort of gauge your overall impressions. You're like, well, there was this one shot where she's like starts running backwards, and you can tell that they're just trying to frame it up. I mean, I guess that does well, like, I mean, add up to a whole. If a film isn't pulling me into it enough for me to not notice something like that right like i mean i i at a moment like that i should just be so swept up mm-hmm. in all of the like i mean like people are dying and crushed and monsters are fighting and yeah, yeah. and this this girl's trying to get reunited with her husband and her son and i'm just sitting there like she's running weird like mm-hmm. i don't know just no i mean it's legitimate but it, it had interesting things to say about war and families. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, th- this was your big question going into the movie. You were like, what? Like, the original was sort of a, a comment on the the atomic bombs that were dropped yeah. on Japan during World War Two, And you were like, what does this movie have to say? You know, are they talking about 9-11? Like, what, what's the angle here? It's definitely anti-nuclear weapons. And to, to an extent, like, nuclear power. Well, like, radiation and everything. Mm. I don't know. It's... I'm not entirely sure where it stands. Like, it's pro... Actually, it might be anti-military. Because it it has to do with, like, separation of, like, parents and children. And, like, after the extended prologue it jumps forward 15 years into the future to 2014 and one of the characters from earlier is all grown up and he's like estranged from his father and he is just returning home from i forget where they sent him something with the military and uh, he'd been away for 14 months 
and you see that he has a wife and a son who's about to turn five. And it's like, I don't, I don't come from a military family, so I guess I have a different view of this, but like if I had a kid like that young or a kid of any age, like under like 18, like, I don't know if I would go away for 14 months, even if it was to like kill people from my country and stuff. It's something that I don't comprehend. Right. Um, and like, there are plenty of people who do that and mm. they figure it out and say, it just seems like that's like crucial ages to like be present for. Yeah. But I mean, the film, I think be- like sort of deals with that because like, he's then like, you know, he was separated from his family, like by choice. Cause he joined the military and then all this other stuff happens. And then he's like separated from them because of monsters. <laughs> yeah. And he himself was separated from his father, and then, like, there's a reunion, and then a separation, a reunion, like, it's all... So, like, I mean, it might be trying to say something about the military and the family, to to an extent, but it doesn't seem to... For a film that takes itself way too seriously, I'm not sure exactly where it stands Mm. politically. There, There wasn't... Like, I don't want the... What I've heard the 90s Godzilla was like, where it's just it's all like a send up of it and everybody's laughing and there's all these one liners and stuff like that. But I'd like, so like, Oh, we're human beings. Occasionally we crack a joke or a smile mm-hmm. and it, it was just really deadly serious. Yeah. Well, would you recommend the movie? I mean, it sounds like I would say no, but I would, it's, it's interesting mm-hmm. and it's great. When Godzilla gets up and going, I don't know, maybe they'll, it, now that it's going to be, if it's going to be like a new franchise, maybe they'll iron all that stuff out. Maybe, I just, the way, the way the movie is, like when I, when I think like, oh, they're going to have sequels because of like the focus of the film, I'm not thinking like, oh, we're going to see more Godzilla adventures. It's like, we're going to have to deal with this family some more that I don't really like <laughs> because that's what the movie was about. Right. Right. And like. It would be weird to have these main protagonists in a movie and then like, we're going to do a sequel and then never mention those characters again, which happens a lot. Well, I mean, that's like basically every Godzilla movie is like that. Yeah. Where, I mean, you know, Godzilla raids again. I don't think there were any carryover characters from from the original Godzilla. Or like you look at like all like the, you know, the Universal Monster movies and stuff. So many of those are just like, oh, you know, these are a new set of characters and then, like, a new set of characters. We never find out what happens to the the couple who walks off into the sunrise at the end of The Ghost of Frankenstein, which is always so weird to me. Yeah, I mean, because ultimately, <laughs> like you said, like, you don't want to, you know, sit through all this sort of bullshit stuff when there are monsters to be had. But... The- it's a, it's a weird balance. If it's done well, it's a, then it yeah. But I feel like this is a the guy who directed it. He was a big Godzilla fan. He's a big monster fan. He wanted to make a Godzilla movie, and I don't know if maybe like all the people stuff was like forced upon him, which I can't really see a studio doing. <laughs> no, but I, mean, I think it, it makes he sense. didn't handle like, it well. When you're trying to like be like, all right, you know, I got him. I want to make this Godzilla movie. I want to make it feel real and and modern i want to uh i mean you you as a as a filmmaker and as a storyteller you want to have like fleshed out characters and you want to have like human drama 
well done well done well yeah that's the whether maybe, or not you succeeded doing that like but i understand it's, it's not something that's like oh you have to do all this stuff like forced upon you like you want to you want to try to like have human you know characters developed enough that you can invest yourself in it but you want to try harder than this i mean it's, it's not that the humans are there and that they're the focus it's just like the hu like i want likable or interesting humans mm-hmm yeah, I mean, whether or not you do it well, I mean, that's often the the challenge, I, I guess. And he comes from, like, a visual effects background. He's only directed one other film before, which I haven't seen. It was called Monsters, and it was, like, this, like, really low-budget movie where he, like, created all these monsters for it. That's basically all I know about it. Mm. And, like, maybe if he'd had, like, a co-director or something, even though that, that's often frowned upon... Unless people like come up together or something, yeah, which is really weird. I don't, I don't know why that doesn't happen more often. But I mean, it's one thing like you think like the Coen Brothers; they've always worked together. Or like, I mean, you and Chris co-directed a movie, but like, you're like coming up at the point. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're two established directors who are like, hey, like let's make a movie together. Like, uh, Tim Burton calls up Brian Singer, and it's like, hey, you know what we should do this summer? Let's make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> and oftentimes when that does happen you wind up with something like four rooms yeah like an anthology thing or something but if they were actually like or like grindhouse where you know the the closest thing i can think of is uh sin city where robert rodriguez was like i want frank miller to co-direct this with me mm. and the director's guild was like no you can't do that for i don't i don't even know like all all the weird rules because they they're a place. union and unions are yeah. like that so he had to actually like drop out of like the of the director's guild to, to i thought to he had that. already didn't he from dust till dawn was a non-union film right because there's a whole documentary on the dvd about how they were like i don't i don't know i don't know how the, the rules are weird i don't i don't really understand them but yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, you you have to be, like, a recognized directing partnership. In You have to be recognized by the guild as a partnership yeah. to, do, like, do it. And, uh, yeah, that's why. And it's weird how it's, they always tend to be brothers. Like, there's, like, the Wachowskis and the Coens and the Farleys. Well, the Wachowskis aren't brothers anymore. They're siblings. Well, they, yeah, they yeah, were, I, I know they started you, as brothers. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it, like, it's weird yeah. how it's, like you have to be brothers to like to do it yeah i don't know i mean like i i find that like directing everything that i've directed with chris or we're co-directing which is you know at this point like quite a lot of projects it definitely has its uh its benefits and but at the same time you know it has its uh its downsides i mean there's more compromising to be had yeah but oftentimes that compromise <clears throat> works in the the project's favor, I think. If you're on the right page, you have to have the right kind of partnership. That's the thing. I mean, you can't just have, like, two clashing egos. Because that just, you know, won't produce anything good. <laughs> you have to share the vision. David O. Russell will not be able to find any uh, co-directors anytime soon, probably. Mm. I mean, it is weird when, like... I just can't imagine getting handed the the keys to do this like huge big budget like summer blockbuster movie where it's like 
yeah, I'm like a visual effects guy, and like I've directed like one really low budget thing before. Like, how does that happen? Makes me feel like it's it's just not as hard as it seems to like make a big <laughs> studio movie like that to convince somebody that like you can do a good job. I read an interview with him in the latest issue of Rue Morgue, uh, where he was saying working on like his first film, which was very low budget, like like the difference between that and something like Godzilla, which is enormous budget. The things that are very easy to do on low budget films become the most difficult things to do. Mm. And the things that are the hardest to do on low budget films become the easiest things to do. And he's like, if I want something built, if I want something created, all I have to do now is like snap my fingers and be like, we need this. And uh, this whole team is there and they just do it. Mm -hmm. But if like, I want to just have like this, small intimate moment where I'm like discussing something with an actor or just coming up with ideas on the fly and just mm-hmm. like relaying it to the team. It then becomes this whole like, okay, I got to let this person know and this person, this, and this person. And it's like, right. Yeah. And it, and I mean, even just simple things like coming down to just like moving stuff around on set, mm-hmm. moving equipment around, like you're suddenly, you know, it's like the grip people, handle all of like the 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 gear all like the lighting gear and all that kind of equipment you have your whole camera team and they're doing all of that stuff you have your own specific you have all like the dolly team and they're just doing they just touch the dollies it's not like i mean if you want to go and like just oh i'm just gonna move this light stand over it's like you're technically not really supposed to do that it's like you have to tell somebody else to like do it it's like so I can understand how like I did I it must be kind of frustrating in that way where it's just like you're kind of chained to your director's chair mm-hmm. in some way maybe I don't know I haven't directed a big blockbuster studio film but not yet um but that's the thing like I don't even know if I'd really want to you know it just seems like I mean it'd be a good experience but like the thing is people might say like I don't know if I'd want to you know, you can say that all you want, but I mean, if somebody comes <laughs> along with a check for God knows how much. If some no, I mean, like if someone was like, "Hey, do you want to make Godzilla and like do it through the studio thing?" I'd be like, I mean, you don't say no. Yeah, and it's weird to think of like, I mean, if if you're like making like these small independent films and you know, like you're having a great time or whatever, like somebody comes along and offers you like. 10 million dollars let's say just random number Mm. like to direct a film you think like what can what is 10 million dollars how much do i make in one year right like how much like could i give to other people how much could i like make other people's lives better Mm -hmm. let alone my own and like then it becomes hard to like well is that still selling out because i'm doing like maybe some maybe not like a cool like godzilla type thing but just some horrible nonsense i I think like that it's it's dumb the the selling out idea that a lot of people throw around like i think is just it's dumb like what like if people become successful like that's not their fault for like, that's not selling, selling out. out the selling out would be doing something that they don't believe in for the money right that would be selling out like somebody just making a movie and like it's like oh that was a su- successful one I've got all this money now like that's but not like, necessarily selling but it's, out it, but it's like you know if if I don't know people throw around that term a lot yeah that's like, true eh, you know like if a filmmaker is like making all these sort of like low budget movies and stuff like the director of Godzilla like if he had like a sort of a following beforehand with like you know these 
great sort of like indie low budget films and then like he's tapped to make godzilla you know and his legion of fans are like he's selling out it's like well no maybe he just wants to like yeah. like why well, i mean in this why, case it's like he have that kind of experience you know what i mean like, in this case it's like out of the two movies he's directed both were effects driven monster movies mm-hmm. the only difference is like the budgets so well i don't I, i'm trying to think of like what the comparison could be but let's say uh the difference between like my own private idaho and finding forrester as far as gus van sant goes or um a lot of people take issue with anything that tim burton has directed this century mm. compared yeah, to like tim burton's a his good, 80s maybe 90s a good stuff. example but i mean like i get the sense with tim burton that it's just like the movies he's making like he's making the movies he's making because he wants to and it that. is still like following this same like through line throughout all of his movies mm-hmm. depend like n- no matter what like the size or and it's not like he was making like these tiny little films yeah i mean he, st- he, ba- he practically started with batman so like yeah that was like that was his third feature yeah. and it's like yeah, people at the time were like who the hell is this guy yeah. why is he directing this gigantic movie but it's weird like for people maybe growing up now to look back at the 1989 Batman and be like, that's not a gigantic movie. I mean, <laughs> it was like the big, yeah. the, the biggest movie Yeah, when it came out. It was... I mean, I don't remember it because I was only three years old at the time, but... I was 24. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Just the merchandising alone seemed like some sort of like revolutionary thing. I mean, it's crazy. Like, there's a, um, a documentary... Uh, or a feature on like one of the DVDs, one of the of the of Batman DVDs, yeah. where they just you see all this footage of like the leading up to the premiere, just like all like the crazy amount of like hysteria, or that as they called it, Batmania. It yeah. just became it was just like so huge. I guess like the only thing that could be comparable that I sort of went through was like Star Wars Episode One. I think that was like just like the amount of merchandise and like the media blitz. Like you could not go anywhere for months without seeing Jar Jar's face or Darth Maul or Darth Maul. Yeah, I mean Darth Maul was yeah it was really like the the thing. It's weird to think that like for Batman it was pretty much just like that fucking yellow bat signal yeah, that, everywhere. It's crazy. Like yeah, <laughs> and you didn't even really see. I mean, you'd see some images of like joker and batman but it was mostly but just the that, bat symbol yeah, they like, put that bat symbol on everything because you put that on something and immediately you can sell that for like twice as much yeah. to some stupid kid like me who has way too many like i've got like fucking like erasers and <laughs> random things from that era yeah. like just i, I mean, don't know yeah it's crazy yeah i can't think of any other movie that could be comparable to that kind of just like massive hype and hysteria i mean there are things like you know like harry potter and stuff but it it wasn't like when that first harry potter movie was coming out there was any sort of real huge movement yeah where it wasn't like you know oh i everywhere you look there's like harry's face just staring at you with like just huge tie-ins with fast food places and 
soda companies and everything. And I think it helps that for Batman there was just the identifiable logo. Because mm-hmm. for Harry Potter, you've got all those characters and like the actors' faces and stuff, but there's not like a yeah, there's not just there's no just like symbol you can yeah, just yeah. put up and like yeah, that's the bat that. symbol like literally like <laughs> is just black background, gold bat symbol. Yeah, no no text, nothing like that's the poster, and it's just like that's all you need. Yeah, it's like the Superman like S shield, but that yep. wasn't. I mean, that's that's out there. But, like, I don't think any of the Superman movies have been accompanied by, like, this um, swarm I mean, like, of stamping that The, the first Superman movie, the first Christopher Reeve Superman yeah. movie, I think definitely had, like, a lot of, like, there was a lot of hype around it because it was... The first big it, yeah, it was, superhero it was, movie. It was, yeah, it was, yeah. like, the big, for, the first big superhero movie. And... I wasn't around for that one. Yeah. So, I don't... But I, I don't think it was really of the level of batman i mean even like the first star wars movie that it wasn't like a huge build-up to it it was just kind of like once the movie was out then it was everywhere because people were like holy crap you have to see this movie and then it just exploded but yeah i mean with with episode one i mean it was seemed like just a whole year of just (laughs) you know constantly putting darth maul's face in your face and I haven't seen episode one, and I, I feel like I shouldn't have to say spoiler alert because this isn't a spoiler from that. It's a spoiler from other Star Wars movies. But there were these commercial. I think it was Burger King had all the Star Wars stuff. I don't know. One of the fast food chains was doing all Star Wars stuff, and it said in, um, like in the eighties or for the original trilogy. No, no, for episode one, um, Taco Bell. That was like the fast food place that had the commercials oh yeah i wow. mean taco okay. bell was like i i <laughs> i went to taco bell they had like these crazy collector cups they had all like the toys and just like it was okay. it was it was crazy well there was like this one commercial at least one commercial that i guess it was for taco bell and it was saying like to come in and you'll get like a toy or whatever and like it was like you can be like anakin and it was like you be like anakin and i'm like thinking like now, maybe they're changing it in this trilogy, but my memories of the previous one imply that that's not a path you want to set kids out on. <laughs> yeah. Like, again, spoilers, Anakin grows up to be Darth Vader. Maybe the Taco Bell people hadn't seen the other ones. They were they were waiting to watch all six in order. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, I don't want to watch episode four before I see episode three. So, But I, I don't know. I mean, that's one of the fundamental problems with episode one is that, like, You've got this little kid, and it is kind of trying, like, and like you say, like, there's, like, the the merchandising aspect of it was, like, or the the idea is, like, oh, you put a kid in it, like, that's some, that's a character that kids can identify with, and then kids will want to, to be Anakin. It's good to identify with him, because, like, but the thing is, is, like, what kid identifies with Anakin? Like, when you watch Star Wars, kids just, kids want to be Han Solo or Luke Skywalker, you know, like you don't. It doesn't have to be like. Was there any an annoying little kid? Was there like a Han Solo type character in Episode One? No, and that's part of the problem. Okay. <laughs> like, there's no Han Solo. It's all just like boring, stiff people, just like you know, senators and chancellors and yeah somebody Trade federations uh, and it's crazy i forget who said it somebody was saying about like the difference between the trilogies is that like 
when George Lucas was making the original Star Wars, you know, he was thinking back on like all the exciting things he enjoyed when he was a kid and like these exciting movies. And also, I mean, he was like a, like a hot rod driver and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And just like, so these exciting like action sequences. And then he spent the next 20 years or so in meetings. Right. So then he goes to like make this new movie and, and it's like, well, that's what life is. Life yeah. is all meetings and committees <laughs> and children. Cause he had kids on, yeah. you know, in that meantime. And so like he, you know, so you got your kid in there and like yeah. you have your, wacky cartoon character your sassy black stereotype (laughs) yeah and just meeting after meeting (laughs) and he he was really into politics and stuff so like he tried to infuse some of that like i i appreciate the idea of like trying to make the prequel trilogy like feel like its own sort of thing making it this political epic like i don't know that kind of an angle yeah in space and stuff you know it's it's a it's an interesting idea it just um just kind of betrays what star wars kind of was like just like the heart of star wars which is just like unbound adventure just you know we don't really capture that as much but anyway we're talking about star wars again and uh yeah, that happens. Um, We've been going for four to five minutes. We gotta like getting get back this. to Godzilla for a second. Okay, let's wrap up Godzilla. <laughs> All right, so we can move on. It might be. I believe the film was shot for three D because in the end credits it mentions like three D mm-hmm. and stuff. So like, the the worst use of three D I've seen have have been like films like World War Z and The Wizard of Oz, where three D was brought in later. Right, obviously for Wizard of Oz. Um, and this, as far as like films I've seen that were like made for 3D, it's not very good 3D, and it just you never get the impression. It, it seemed well, it was like probably still converted. Okay, then it was that was a mistake. Because that's how they do most of it. Like they most movies that are even like made with the intention, like okay, well we'll have a 3D release. They don't actually shoot it in 3D. That was a big mistake then because it doesn't. Which is weird because like I would think that it's like it's more expensive and time consuming to go in after the fact and convert every damn shot into 3d. You got to cut out all the layers. It seriously just looked and like, it reminded me of like the, the South park aesthetic where they just have the, each character is a piece of construction paper and they're put against the background. Yeah, that's and that's like, like cuz you have no Godzilla. like you have no like facial depth or yeah. like you know it you lose a lot of that. Yeah, that annoyed so it me. It is weird. Especially yeah. since I mean I went on a Tuesday so it was less expensive, but because it was like 3D BTX, I still it was still like $11 instead of 15 or whatever it is normally. Mm-hmm. But like I think if I just saved that $5 and seen it flat, I might have enjoyed it better because I it's not I'm a, yeah, it probably was just converted because it is it's horrible 3D. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they don't just if you're going to make a movie in 3D, like you should make a movie it, in 3D. Make a movie in 3D. <laughs> shoot it in 3D. It's always going to be better that way. Okay, with all that talk out of the way, let's discuss what we came to discuss. And that is Akira Kurosawa's seminal masterpiece, Seven Samurai. Now, we watched this movie together two days ago yep and it's kind of a shame that we didn't record right after because we were on we were on a high after watching the movie yes fuck yes 
and I'm trying to get myself back into that mindset of just having watched it <laughs> and being like, this is the best movie ever made. It was my first time. Um, and I didn't, uh, well, technically I had tried to see it before one time on, it was videotape. It just started like breaking. How far did you get in to that? I'm not sure. The furthest I got in any format was like right after the, uh, the farmers are voicing their concerns about samurai seducing their women. Towards the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Like, we've already met a couple samurai. Right. And then, but like, they haven't come to the village yet. Right. But I don't remember, like, when I saw... And, like, there was one time in a classroom we were wa- we were going to watch the movie, and, like, the DVD kept fucking up. So we ended up just watching something else, which I forget what we ended up watching instead, but that's got to suck if a professor has a whole, like, lesson planned out. They're like, okay, we're going to do this entirely different movie now. Yeah, that, um, that would definitely <laughs> I think there was another time, I'm not sure, but at least twice on two different formats, I tried watching this film. And, didn't didn't uh, you rent one from the library or something? Yes. Yes, that because that was back when I was doing, um, I was at ACC and I was taking Intro to Film with Cavaluzzi and I was uh, watching a lot of very interesting films that semester. Um, the Apartment and Midnight Cowboy, I watched uh, around that time and wild strawberries and, um, the seventh seal. And then I tried watching seven samurai. And, um, I think that might've been the VHS that was breaking. And I think I just returned it as if nothing happened. So somebody else probably took it out. So and was like, what the poor fuck? soul had to <laughs> live with your seven samurai curse. Uh, but I also, I watched the only other Kurosawa film that I've ever seen Rashomon um around that time and i watched that on vhs on one of those like tiny little tv sets they had set up in the acc library Mm. which was good to like when you watch something on like a really tiny screen it really focuses your attention but at the same time you're not i don't want to piss david lynch off (laughs) (laughs) but i was underwhelmed by rashomon and i'm wondering if that was just why although i was really impressed with some other films like the silence that uh that i watched in that format but i don't know but anyway i'm really glad that i finally watched seven samurai finally broke the curse yes so your dvd copy is safe yeah thank you have you have you tried doing anything with it since then maybe Um, the next time you put it in something no i i haven't uh i haven't put it in again this was your uh your fourth time you think i think this is my fourth time yeah the first time i'm pretty sure i rented it i know like i watched it once on my own and was blown away then i brought it over to the garage and watched it again with chris and jared because i was like you guys have to see this movie and uh and then i watched it another time while i was at school in florida yeah so i think this is my fourth time it's jared's birthday today and it is jared's birthday today happy birthday jared happy birthday jared you probably won't listen to this. And, and if uh, you do, it's not on your birthday. So, <laughs> fuck you. Um, <laughs> uh, it is one of those films that, like, well, actually, um, on Facebook, like, I saw that you liked this. Like, a week ago, uh, our friend Gavin posted something like, what's oh, yeah. the one film that you're, like, ashamed of 
not having seen or embarrassed to not have seen. And like a lot of people were like joking around and saying they're really terrible movies. But for the most part, I think people were being. Yeah, I saw like people saying like, you know, Gone with the Wind, which is one that I haven't seen. Yeah. And like people, you know, some people hadn't big, seen like The Godfather or Scarface. Right, yeah, I haven't yeah, yeah. seen the 80s Scarface, um, Casablanca, things. And I put Seven Samurai. And um, it, it, I do feel like I've like passed this big, like I've gone through this threshold now. Like, Well, I mean, it is, I mean, you've seen probably like the majority of film. Like there's, there's a certain film canon. Right. Movies that are sort of like universally considered to be the greats. Yeah. And that list that we just sort of were talking about, you know, there's like Citizen Kane, The Godfather, Casablanca, Vertigo, Rules of the Game. Yeah, you yeah. know, just these huge these these masterworks that are just universally praised and will always be held in high regard when it comes to just great achievements in cinema. And Seven Samurai is is on that list. And I just put up a Facebook post a few days earlier, and like. You know, I mentioned that in a list of some other movies I hadn't seen because I still, I also still haven't seen uh, La Ventura, Last Year at Marion Bad, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or the Passion of Joan of Arc. Which I mean, Lord of the Rings trilogy it hasn't made it onto any of those big lists yet, but based on like the way everybody talks about it, I'm fairly certain that within the next decade or so, it's going to be up there. It's definitely like it's a such a hugely masterful achievement in filmmaking and just so widely influential in the way that films are made today and just the kinds of movies that are made today. We were kind of talking about it a couple weeks ago or something, but like now ever since Lord of the Rings, like every movie has to be epic in scale and like you have to have these like big battles. Like there's a trailer for like Maleficent yeah, um, in theaters. And even that has like, you know, got to have the, the war of the fantasy war, you know, everything's got to be, got to be epic. And and would you say that, I mean, what you just said, you could have substituted seven samurai as that's far as true, like yeah. the way movie, like that's cause would the Lord of the Rings movies, would they have been made the way they were if it hadn't been for seven samurai? I mean, like, again, this is me not having seen them, but like all these like big, like, I don't know how to even describe it, like, character-driven action epics, like... Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy. There are so many, like, conventions that you just take for granted as being just like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's how a a movie is. That's how, like, an action-adventure story is supposed to be. putting your team together. Yeah, the idea of, like, um, which I I was reading an essay about it earlier, about how, like, that whole film premise of, like, a group of sort of individuals coming together to achieve a common goal. Right. And like you say, putting the team together. That's something that had been done, perhaps, like before Seven Samurai, but not to any sort of real success, or there are no like real sort of notable examples of that. I mean, like you could sort of like... I mean, this is 1954, you can sort of put like the Wizard of Oz into that, like oh she keeps meeting people as she goes along, and then it, but yeah, it's not like true. she's planning ahead, like oh, I'm gonna need somebody who can do this and someone who can do right. this, and we're gonna, it's just like, but I, I mean like since then there's just uh you know I mean it's it's a it's the a Guns convention. of Navarone and the Dirty Dozen all these like big action movies where they they 
put the team together. Mm-hmm. They train. That you figure out who does what best. Stuff like, and then um, finally, there's like, like Inception. I don't know if you've seen Inception. No. There, that, there's that element of it where it's like, you know, we need the, uh, we need the safe cracker. We need the, you know, we need this person to do this job. We need that guy to do that job. Um, like the Ocean's Eleven movies. Um, just like, and that's something that like you you don't even consider as being like something that someone must have done first. You know what I mean? And is, is you but it's hard it to granted. think of like who did it before. Yeah, I mean, and it's and, and you know, I mean, it's the what is it? Um, which one? I don't know everything that happened before Seven Seven. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, based on this essay I was reading, they were saying like this is sort of like the first great example you can point to of that and that's just one thing in this movie another thing they were talking about is like the idea of we introduce our main samurai character at the beginning of this movie he's in the middle of this other task this other um sort of mini adventure i guess that doesn't have anything to do with the main plot but serves to introduce our main character and they're saying that like seven samurai might be the first time that that's happened and sort of is the reason why in so many other action adventure movies today like we introduce our leading man in the middle of some other task going on that doesn't have anything to do with the main plot that's like the structure of all the james bond films isn't it yeah. isn't there's always yeah, a bit every the, james that bond opening movie, yeah. sequence and not like i keep talking about all these movies that i've never seen so <laughs> I, I'm no, still I mean, every, james every james bond, bond movie kind of is that way but yeah, I mean that, that that's something that like you don't even think about as being. Like, it just seems like good, like oh, that's just it's just smart good storytelling, screenwriter you know? logic. Yeah. Like you got to you know, introduce you, this you, guy is an expert. We know that going in, and we, we jump into the action. We kind of you know we open we start with something exciting to introduce our character, like mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. Yeah, you know, he's off. He has the whole boulder rolling adventure before we even talk about you know the 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 arc. Um, and in, in Seven Samurai, the the character is um, saving a child from the clutches of a, of a kidnapper, holding him hostage. Who's apparently a maniac, yeah. based on like the creepy mutterings you're hearing, and the... and he shaves his head. He cuts off his uh, his. Uh, I don't know what you call it. What do you what do you call that? I would call it a ponytail, but that's that, there is a term for it. Yeah, the sa- it... the samurai ponytail in the back. And, like, it's very symbolic. It's like he's willing to sacrifice, like, his honor to save yeah. this child, which shows, mm-hmm. like, his strength of character right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So he pretends to be a monk, and then he, he has one of the local women make him two rice balls, and he brings them over. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I'm just a monk. I'm here to, like, make sure that the child is fed. And, and then he just dispatches of the thief, and it's very quick. But then when the thief dies, it's in that great slow motion. Yeah. And we cut back to the reaction shot, which isn't in slow motion. And then we cut back to him falling to the ground in slow motion. It's very disorienting when you have, like, the reverse shot that's not in slow motion. And then you go back to it. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I just, yeah. Yeah, and, like, that's something that, to my knowledge, like, I, I can't think of any movie that I've seen pre-1954 that does that kind of sort of camera play like that. Heighten the the feeling of watching someone be killed in in slow motion like that so yeah i mean watching seven samurai you might think that like oh these are all things everything that's happening in this movie has been done 
a million times since. It, the movie's been picked apart and has gone on to influence so many other people that you'd think that watching this original, it wouldn't have the same kind of impact, which, you know, you can't put yourself in 1954 watching it for the first time, not seeing anything like it. But you, you, there are some movies that like you go back to the, to the original, the thing that started them all. And it almost feels like, Oh, we've seen this so many times, you know, but that's not the case in seven samurai at all. I mean, if something is like the first to do something, I don't know if it's necessarily like a boring thing. Like I think of like, when I finally got around to watching the jazz singer, I've heard people speak on film before. Um, I think you have too, <laughs> but it's like that moment when he stops singing. Cause in 1927, you know, we'd already had like synchronized sound, just not synchronized speech. Mm-hmm. So like he stops singing and then he just starts talking to the audience and he's like, you ain't heard nothing yet. It's like, you get this feeling like, mm-hmm. fuck yeah, I haven't like this. <laughs> But I'm trying to, there was one specific example I'm trying to think of where it wasn't anything as, as big, like a tech, a huge technical achievement like that. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of like firsts now. But what I mean to say is that everything about Seven Samurai holds up. Yeah. There's nothing about it that feels cliche, even though like it's using these tropes that we're so familiar with now. It doesn't in any way detract from the viewing experience or the emotional experience. This is one emotional movie. Yeah. I was sucked in. Yeah. I just, I mean, it's, it's three hours and 27 minutes long and it's present incarnation, which I believe is the original incarnation. It, it's it was, the, yeah, it's the original cause they Japanese first, version. I guess when it showed at the Venice Film Festival, it was two hours and 35 minutes because uh, Toho was like, well, we don't know if other countries can like take this because it's so Japanese. Yeah. So they, they cut it out. And then when it got to America, they took out another like 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, it's 50. I think it's 50 minutes total. And I was reading reviews from like, uh, I read one by uh, Tony Richardson from like shortly after it was released and another from Paul, Pauline Kale from the mid 60s. And they were both saying, like, yeah, it's great, but, you know, we're curious about the originals. Like, they still hadn't been able to see at the... I mean, and, mm. you know, this is before video and everything. Yeah. So it's like you'd have to, like, travel to Japan to do it or... Or there would have to be, like, a special screening somewhere that's, like, yeah. the uncut version. Yeah. And it's like, we're really spoiled these days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is crazy. But, um, yeah, th- three hours and 27 minutes, and it just, like... You don't notice. You, I mean, you can no. feel. I have been on this epic journey with these characters. Absolutely. And like you, you feel the weight of it, really, and like the depth of it. But it doesn't. There's never drag a moment where anything. you feel like, "Come on, let's get on with it." Yeah. N- never at all. And it's. Uh, I mean, we talked about this a little after we watched it the other day. It was like, it's not that it's quick paced it's just that when you when you care so much and when it's done so well it doesn't have to be quick it you just no it it just doesn't feel slow yeah the pacing is very it's deliberate 
there's no real fat anywhere for a movie that's three hours and 27 minutes long with a, a large cast of characters that each have their own like little backstory yeah and we each and we kind of like learn a little bit about each one as it goes along there's no extra baggage like anywhere like mm. thinking about cutting out 50 minutes like i don't even know where you would start i guess like the love story does that take up roughly 50 i mean like i would never cut that out and mm-hmm. i love it but i'm thinking of like you'd have to you couldn't do bits and pieces here and there you'd have right. to like remove like a whole like subplot or something or maybe they or they're like, okay, we're gonna go to the village and find some samurai. Cut to, all right, we've got these seven samurai here. <laughs> yeah. Or I mean, like they get to the village. You could. My guess is that like you'd wanna like the temptation on, on the studio would be like to cut out some of that middle section, where it's like, you introduce all of your samurai, you get them all together, you get them to the village, and then you sort of like, cut down some of the time where they're like walking around and being like this is where you know if they came from the north this yeah. is the kind of they, they plan for all like the, the all the different contingency plans and stuff you know maybe you could cut some of that stuff out but and i love that stuff that is it's so, so leisurely like uh, if this happens this happens the buildup like, of everything it makes you like by the time the bandits actually sort of re-enter the movie you're just so ready for it and you're kind of uh, a little nervous. And it's set up so beautifully at the very beginning of the movie with the bandits looking like, oh, well, we hit this village before. We'll wait until the next crop comes in. Mm-hmm. And then it reveals that somebody was listening. And you've got this ticking clock all of a sudden. Yeah, where it's like, they're coming back. Yeah, and it's like, you know, they do come back, like, I don't know, two hours later or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's like you the whole time you've been like, you hurry up, the bandits are coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, there is that looming over all of that, all that middle section going on. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. For a movie that is three and a half hours, I I didn't remember it being that long at all in my memory. The the movie, you know a movie is like masterfully made when, in my memory, I've seen the movie, I had seen the movie three times before. Hmm. If beforehand you had asked me like, how long is the movie? I might have said two and a half hours maybe close to three hours, but not three and a half hours. I, I'd probably say like somewhere between like two and a half, three hours. Cause it doesn't feel like you're sitting watching this thing for almost four hours. Yeah. Um, and also like one of the things that I realized when we first started watching it was that the aspect ratio is it's in four by three. Right. So full screen picture, basically yeah, the Academy ratio. TV ratio, and that's something that I'm like, is that is that right? I'm thinking in my memory, I'm like, I could I could have sworn this was like, this is a wide screen movie. I mean, and I actually had to look at the back of the box to make sure that I'm like, seeing this right. I'm like, but it's a Criterion. I'm like, they wouldn't put a full screen for it. I'm like, that's weird. But it like it's it's unbelievable that like you just you get that sense of like an like of epic images that seem like it stretches out in your in your mind like when you think back to the movie like you don't picture those black bars on on either side no and it's almost it does, as the, if the frame doesn't feel constrained it's almost as if the movie like slowly stretched out to fill the tv over the three hours yeah. and like because by the end it's just you're just it's it's a it's a wide film it's yeah. an epic huge film but 
and that's i mean yeah. the whole thing the whole feeling you get while watching it and after you're watching it was like that was an epic movie but what's amazing is like there's not a whole lot of epic things happening like today's version of epic is kind of what we were talking about with like lord of the rings where it's like you need a huge battle with a massive army and like you know neo's gonna fight them all off and you know and you know we're gonna explode them off and see them in slow motion we're gonna rotate around and like we're gonna shoot this bullet and it's gonna go flying and it's gonna hit his head and it's gonna explode in slow motion we're gonna see all the guts and then like you know king leonidas is gonna kick him and say this is spartan you know and lord of the rings sounds crazy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just like you know that's sort of yeah. what you think of as being epic and this movie is just like it's it's not like that at all we're with these like meek farmers the whole time you know trying to eat by and we're seeing these like great warriors but like they don't do like there's not like any like real battles yeah before like the the bandits actually show up we get little hints about how great these samurai are in that opening sequence we were talking about where the uh our sort of main samurai character is uh fights off the the kidnapper and then there's the uh the duel scene with the uh Again, the character names are going to be tough to remember. Um, I do have a list here, though, of the character names. Kyozo is the uh, the samurai who has the, the 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 duel at the beginning, and at first they use um, they have sticks or bamboo rods that they're dueling with, and um, they seem to connect with each other's shoulders at the same time. And the opponent says, oh, so it's a draw. And Kiyozo is like, no, I'm sorry, but I, I won. He's like, what? What are you talking about? We hit we hit at the same time. And he's like, no, if these were real blades, you'd be dead right now. And enraged, he's kind of like, all right, then, you know, let's do it with real blades. And, of course, he slices them down. But even in that, like, scene, which is epic... It's very, it's like slowly paced, it's methodically paced. It's not like an over-the-top action set piece. It's one strike. It's just one slash. And it's just infinitely more satisfying and thrilling than any number of huge action scenes that they try to... Foist upon us. Yes. (laughs) And it's like, I'm not saying that those are bad, necessarily. I like a good epic battle scene. Like, and Lord of the Rings is a great example of, 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 of movies that really do it right in a very entertaining and thrilling and just suspenseful way that, that you really feel uh, connected to the characters. But so often, movies try to substitute... They try to skip to the end game, you know? Yeah. And Now, granted, I mean, Seven Samurai has three and a half hours to play that game and most movies are kind of just like crammed into an hour and a half or maybe they get two hours god forbid it's two and a half hours and so they're trying to like cram in as much you know as many robots punching each other as they can but anyway one of the things that adds to its like epic qualities is how uh it feels so primal in a way like so of the earth like it's just coming up from nature. Mm. And I mean it is it's it is a period film. You know, so 
naturally you don't have like modern technology or whatever aside from guns that aside are coming from in a handful of muskets yeah but i mean like, it's just everything just seems so real and like it doesn't like when something is like burning down you don't feel like oh they made some models and burned them or they're using special effects or anything it's just like they're building things and burning them down yeah. which is a point that you made the other day when we, after yeah, after we watched, we watched it, it yeah. yeah like there are some moments that just are unbelievable in their scope like the the scene where Kikuchio, uh Toshiro Mifune's character is standing outside of the of the mill as it's burning down and he mm. rushes over because there's a family inside and the woman comes out and she's been stabbed in the back or something and she's holding a baby and she they're standing in the middle of a river and she hands him the baby she collapses so he like, they're standing in this river with this huge mill burning in the background and he's like holding this real baby and like he has this whole emotional scene where he's, he he sees himself in this in this child and it's just like it is unbelievable that they that they were I'm just so impressed in the production of it like they're able to like capture that such this emotional and intimate moment in the right amount of takes to do it like while this whole thing is like burning around them and you know keeping this baby safe from fall because if they drop yeah. the baby into the river it's, think like, of like, you know, <laughs> it's dangerous I, I mean john landis tried to pull something like that off and he ended up like killing three actors yeah including children yeah because i think vic morrow was crushed and like at least one of the kids was decapitated because the helicopter fell on them mm-hmm. while they were shooting a somewhat similar scene where they're they're running from like a burning hut across like a small river maybe there was a seven samurai influence there it seems to have influenced everything else um <laughs> yeah we'll give it credit right. yeah <laughs> it's all your fault Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> you murdered those children <laughs> yeah but i mean you just get this sense of this feeling of realism and yeah, I mean, like you say, like a connection to nature or like a connection to the real world. And like, I had just gone on a hike the day before watching <laughs> it. And I'm sitting there looking at like just the way that the, the sun is coming through the trees. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that I'm watching um, maybe just like lighting equipment shining through trees, perhaps. But like... I mean, you don't think that while watching the film. Yeah, yeah not at but, all. But, like, looking back, it's like, well, I mean, you th- I mean, like, John Ford, who was a big influence on Kurosawa, mm-hmm. you know, he would always get all this credit for, like, his luck. Right. And, like, um, <laughs> yeah, they, they, different things with, like, wind effects yeah, and, like, the way... Yeah, as they say, like, you know, like, Mother Nature takes direction from John Ford. Yeah. Just because of just how seemingly perfect all of his, you know, these great vistas... You know, like the sun comes out at the right time, yeah. and the clouds are picture perfect, and just like, and you get the wind blowing like the this dust in the same way. And then later you learn like he has this whole team of technicians just off camera who are like reflecting light at just mm-hmm. the right spots, and like with these big wind machines and everything, and yeah. just like godlike controlling nature. Yeah. And I mean, and that's something that is like hugely prevalent in all of Kurosawa's work. They say that there are three things that you're guaranteed to get when you go into a Kurosawa movie, and that's wind and dust fire and rain and all three of those things are in great display here in seven samurai and it's the kind of movie that like when when we were done watching it you said like watching this makes me feel like i could never make a movie because it just seems too too grand 
And part of that is like, I mean, it, it feels so effortless and it's just as like, oh, like you see like this, this, the wind blowing this dust in this perfect kind of way in this, in this perfect setting with the sun behind these trees. And you just think like, how could you get so lucky or how, you know, it's deceptively simple. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the, that's the real beauty of of a great filmmaker is that it's it's deceivingly so natural like in the in like in the rain that's used i mean there's this whole the whole end battle scene takes place in these torrential downpours just like crazy thick rain and it seems to fill the entire village it's just this huge thing and it's like i don't know what kind of crazy rain machines they had to make it like that big but they're like running around with horses and stuff this whole all these people uh, running around in these kind of wide shots, and like you asked me, like, do you do you know if they used a rain machine or is or is that real rain or like what? Because yeah, it didn't to me, it just didn't read as rain. Because I I forget what movie it was, but like within the past week or so, I watched some movie where you know how sometimes it's like oh that's clearly a rain machine because like the rain is falling and just these like perfectly even sheets mm-hmm. like and, and like flowing across and it's oh, like a like, sprinkler almost yeah it's like wow they didn't even really try to make it seem like real rain like a shower so like compared to that like i was watching this and i'm like oh my god this is mm-hmm. just like it's just fucking raining yeah like and... but then you you learn that like the way that the rain was photographed like originally like and he used these kinds of torrential downpours in so many of his movies but he learned over the years that like if you just have the rain machine with water, it just didn't look as good. You didn't, you weren't picking up as much of it on camera. So they would add things like milk or in, I think at least in one case, the uh, black ink to the, to the water to make it just pop out more from the background and everything. I wonder if when he started directing color films, like if he had to change his rain formula. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm assuming he didn't use black ink anymore. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird learning some of those things where it's like, it just feels like it wasn't made by people. Mm. Like Seven Samurai doesn't feel like it was made by anyone. It just feels like it, it just exists yeah. as this sort of like just an element of the universe. <laughs> you know, Seven Samurai is like a is like a gift from the gods or something. You just don't think of it as being like, oh yeah, there are people who had to like you know, figure out how to like do all this stuff. And like the, the, the town, the main village that the samurai are protecting, like that was all built in like a real location, you know, like they went out and constructed that whole set. And I guess originally Toho wanted Kurosawa to like build the village set, like at the studio. And, uh, he was like, there's no way that this will, Mm -hmm be nearly as good and part of the reasoning that he was able to convince them was just was that like you know the the more real the sets are like the better the performances are going to be from the actors because like and it's true like if you're in like a like when you're making a movie you can talk about the story and like write you know create all your storyboards and talk with the actors and do all the rehearsals and everything and you can think you have a good idea of what the movie's going to be like, but as soon as you step foot like on the, the set or the shooting location, things change. And it suddenly becomes real. And uh, 
you just get so much. The, the better the sets are, the better the the everything's going to be. It's true, and I mean, like you look at the the shots of the village, like of the the bandits looking down on the on this sad little ring of, of houses, and uh, I mean, yeah, it just feels like it doesn't feel manufactured at all. It just is like it is what it is. There's no substitutes actually being in that real location. And that's all there is to say about Substantia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, uh, I mean, you, we could go on and on about... I mean, I, it's it, with a movie like this, it's almost like, where do you even start, like, dissecting yeah. it? Because there's so many different elements that you could crack apart and talk about. Toshiro Mifune's character mm-hmm. is... Uh, I'm not sure how... Well, I mean, there had been films before where there's, like, the guy who sort of redeems himself, like, the drunk who redeems himself, like, the doctor in Stagecoach. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, like, those characters are never so fun, really. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. He's so... Not necessarily fun, but just so, like, in your face, I guess. He's, like... Well, he's sort of like a forerunner of Randy Quaid in Independence Day. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, Kurosawa, for putting you with that. Um, but, like, it, I'm trying to, like, now it's hard to, like, judge certain, like, acting styles across cultural uh, cult, cultural boundaries, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, now he first worked with Kurosawa on, um, in, like, was it Drunken Angel? But he'd been working with him for a few years at yeah. this point. Yeah. Because he'd at least been in Rashomon. Had, yeah, which was, Rashomon, yeah. which was 1950, right? So that was four years before. Or really, I mean, like, Seven Samurai took a whole year to yeah. film. So, I mean, like, yeah. It was released in 1954, but really it was, like, you know, started in, like, 1953, the beginning of 1953. Well, like, I don't have enough experience with like Japanese films to really be able to like compare his performance to like what was considered like a normal acting performance of the day but was he sort of like what he was doing in Japan is that comparable to Montgomery Cliff James Dean Marlon Brando at the same time in America like just this like big like just force of nature bursting Um, out of the screen I I guess you could look at it that way but again, like I mean, yeah, I don't, I haven't really seen too many Japanese films pre Seven Samurai, right? But I think it really is like akin to Japanese sense of humor and just these kind of like really over the top sort of like facial expressions and like physical acting that kind of brings to mind like in um, I Was Born But there's the video of like the father yeah. making all these goofy faces and stuff. And there's the sort of like this traditional sort of character archetype that is like the the drunk in in Japanese culture, where there's like the like the drunk fighter, like you know the legend of the drunk master, or you know the the someone who's like who's just always drunk and goofy, but is um it, it's more more well rounded than like than drunks are often portrayed in. Well, when, I guess... Um, like American stuff, I guess. And one of the special features to the Ozu film uh, that I watched uh, before I was born, but uh, An Autumn Afternoon, it mentioned 
because there's a few drunk scenes in that movie. Like, it mentioned how, like, public drunkenness is looked at differently in Japanese culture than in America. I mean, clearly, just by looking at our society, it's accepted to a degree. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so prevalent. Mm -hmm. But in Japan, it's like, there's no shame involved. It's just like, oh, they drink alcohol. That's what alcohol does. So that's just how they're acting. And, like, we'll adjust to that. Uh, they, they're, so it's, they're very accepting of people being drunk in public. Mm-hmm. So like I, I feel like that's probably why the. And I guess it's not to say that like Tashiro Mifune's character is a drunk necessarily, because there's really only that one yeah. scene where he, one amazing scene I should say. He gives such a that his performance in Seven Samurai is I think hands down his his greatest performance in any movie. Well, then I guess I won't bother watching any of the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to say that he's not fantastic in, in stuff like Yojimbo. You still haven't seen 1941. <laughs> I haven't. Now I really want to, because he's in that, yeah. Hidden Fortress, uh, Throne of Blood. He plays, uh, or Rashomon. He plays much different kind of samurai in Yojimbo, for instance. He's much more akin to the other kind of samurai that are portrayed in uh, Seven Samurai. And originally, in within the script writing process, the the script of Seven Samurai was written over the course of like six weeks, and it was Akira Kurosawa and two other writers, which I don't remember their names off the top of my head. And originally, the movie was called Six Samurai, and it was they they basically developed the whole story with just six of the samurai, and it was all of the samurai we see in the movie, the very minus, serious, minus sober character. And they realized as they were going along that, like, just having these, like, six samurai who are all, like, you know, great at being samurai and are all uh, centered, it was just boring. And so they were like, we need to we need to throw somebody else in the, into this mix to kind of, like, give some some real sort of character dynamic. And originally, Tashiro Mifune was going to be one of the other samurai. He was going to be um, Kuzio. The, the the guy in the duel at the beginning but once they sort of created this other character uh, Kurosawa had Mifune do that and I guess he, he sort of let him just kind of go on set while they were shooting and sort of improvise a lot of his uh, lines and actions and just sort of just be like just be as, as wild as you want to be and he, part of the reason why his character is just so instantly lovable and he just pops right off the screen is because I mean he is in this world where like all all the other samurai he's sort of torn he's in between the, the, the farmers who are just like can't stick up for themselves and they're just terrified all the time and the samurai who are like you know very centered and are are at peace with themselves and he's just in the in in this in constant character turmoil. Doesn't really know who he, who he is. He doesn't even have a name. <laughs> you know, he steals his name from yeah. some uh, ancestral family tree that he he steals up from somebody. It's it's always like an interesting thing to add to like a story when you also have like this character who's like trying to like cross these like uh these class boundaries which Mm -hmm. 
it's odd that there's like there's like the samurai class mm-hmm. and like the peasant like farmer class. Yeah, and that's and, something like going in like initially you kind of have to like be familiarize yourself with that world as the movie yeah. goes on. I mean, there's that 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 very brief uh, written introduction mm-hmm. thing, which Where it's covers about, it like, to the, a degree. Yeah, like, yeah, just the feudal wars and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I know next to nothing about any of that stuff so yeah i mean anything that i could tell you about how how samurai factored into society i would basically be just like reiterating things i picked up from ghost dog seven samurai okay yeah because <laughs> for me it just i think ghost dog is the source of most of my samurai knowledge mm. yeah but yeah i mean to, to going back to like to mafune i mean he gives such such a comedic performance like so many great like that drunken scene is just hilarious at the same time he's such a uh such a sad character i mean he's holding that child he's like this child is me Mm -hmm. and he like breaks down crying and at the same time he's just he's a he's they even describe him in the movie as being sort of like a wild dog and he ha- like, you feel like he is he is dangerous, but he does have a soft heart. I mean, you see him like interacting with the kids and like, yeah. you know, kind of making jokes and stuff. He, it's just such a as as they would say, it's a tour de force. And I mean, his of the of the samurai who fall, his his death hits it's, the hardest. It definitely hits the hardest. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one thing. I mean, did you know... I mean, you, you've read about film history enough to the point where, like, did you know anything about, like, the outcome of the movie going in? I thought, and I'm not sure what this was based on, I expected all of them to die. Mm. I expected them to, like, beat the bandits, but also die. Mm. The one sequence from, like, the end that I had seen in full... Uh, was the last two samurai dying with the one what's the name of the one the the one who dies right before him and then he have, sort of tries to avenge that death um uh, the 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 dueling samurai yeah the one who okay, uh, yeah. c- 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 uh. and like he's shot and this is actually in in the the documentary Kyuzo. Uh, in the documentary the story of film they talk in there's an episode, I think it's episode 6, 1953 to 1957, which I love that it's like there's so many episodes of this miniseries because mm-hmm. like that's one whole hour long episode just focusing on these years. Yeah, that's... that's um, cool. I mean, it does go a little over and beyond, but still. Um, like, you know, it, it shows that character getting shot and then like throwing his sword and then Toshiro Mufuni's character charging the killer and getting shot and then killing the bandit himself. So I I mean I I had seen that but while watching the film that mm-hmm. never it didn't cross my mind right. or anything and it didn't affect it in any way. I mean you get to know Tashir Mafune so well yeah. and you love him so much and you just want to see him do right because mm-hmm. he he's just trying to do right by the other samurai. I mean there's the the great scene where like uh Kyuzo goes out and is able to steal the the musket and uh comes 
calmly comes back with with the with the gun and it's like you know two more down mm. and goes and, and naps or whatever and, and the young samurai is like just totally in awe of this guy and Kikuchio kind of sees that and is like I can do that and like goes out and and takes a musket for himself but in a wild in wild fashion and he comes back with the armor on yeah he comes back with the armor on and like the musket and he's like oh yeah I did it and he's sort of met by the other samurai like you know why did you leave your post why didn't you do as we all had planned and he's kind of like at a loss of like you know i could just never do anything right to see him like sacrifice himself for the cause is just it's it's heartbreaking yeah to see that like he never was able to see like the kind of respect that everybody did give him in the end you know um so yeah i mean he that definitely does hit hit the hardest I remember watching for the first time. I didn't know anything about like who was going to die or if anyone died or if all of them died or <laughs> who lived or whatever. And I think it was like, it was kind of surprising to me ultimately that it's like there are three survivors and you would think that like you would either go for like an all or nothing or just have like one survivor or like, I don't know, but like three kind of seemed like like an odd dynamic, but I ultimately like I, I I love how you know when the battle is is done and the rain is still going and there's the there's the young samurai who's like where are the bandits? And like they're all dead. We killed them all. We 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 did what we came to do, and he just breaks down crying because he you know he realizes that like I mean they were so close to to victory, and they lost like two of their (laughs) greatest you know two of our favorite characters anyway and Takashi Shimura who's the who's the main the elder samurai I'll call him uh turns to his old friend who who they had sort of known each other in and they fought together in these other feudal wars or like years before and he turns to him and says you know well we live again and the the final words of the movie sort of echo this sentiment about like you know we are not the victors here the the farmers won but we lost because we you know we lost our our brothers and it's this sort of it's the sadness of like it's the old samurai who live somehow and all these young like the younger ones are all the the ones who are sacrificed except for like the very young the youngest one Mm who has sort of gone through this transformation of like, I want to be a samurai to at the end, just being like going through, you know, this terrible traumatic experience. We watch him throughout the movie become a man. I mean, they joke about it. Like, I mean, he loses his virginity. Right. Yeah. And he becomes a samurai and like, he's, he no longer, he loses that. Yeah. He loses that innocence. Yeah. And so, I mean, like he, that, that character at the beginning of the movie is also dead, I guess. So it's just like you have these like, you know, these old samurai who have seemed like they've gone through all of this before, basically. You know, like they didn't want to get back in. They say, like, I'm tired of fighting. I don't want to do this anymore. It's and a like, hell of a thing, killing a man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as said by Clint Eastwood later on in Unforgiven. So there's this sort of like, there's this idea of like, 
I don't know, this generation sort of being like wiped out. Mm. And what's interesting is like all four of the samurai who are killed all die by gunshot. Which you think about it and it's just like, that's such a cheap way to go. And Kyuzo. Kyuzo, yeah. The the master master swordsman. Throws his sword away Mm -hmm. as he dies. And Mark Cousins, who did the story of film, he notes that as like how it's similar to like in like the American Westerns with there's always like, like in my darling Clementine, mm-hmm. in my opinion, John Ford's best film, you have like the oncoming of civilization with like the building of the church right. and everything. And it's like, you know, these old like gunslinger ways, they're on the way out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I mean, not, not American, but still Western set in America. Once upon a time in the West, it's mm-hmm. all has to do with the building of the, the railroad building of the train coming to this town. Yeah. yeah. And it's basically just like, getting rid of the frontier and yeah. bringing civilization in and seven samurai it's like the the old way of the samurai is going out because like who cares how well you are with the sword if somebody can just walk up and shoot you yeah or not even walk up someone can shoot you from a great distance yeah exactly and it's like you don't even you don't see the bandit who shoots Kyuzo right until i mean like you don't he's shot from off screen yeah it's so it just makes he's, it he's seem hi- so he's hiding in this hut. Yeah, he's it's cowardly. Yeah, exactly. there's no honor in it whatsoever, and just that's it's like and it's like this new world where it's like you can't fight this new threat with honor and in the ways that you once could in the past. Like the samurai are almost rendered useless in a way in and the end. To put it back in its time, I mean, this is the same year as. Gojira, mm-hmm. and like, this is a film from a country that had been attacked by nuclear weapons. Yeah, this like, there's no honor in that. There's yeah, no, yeah, like, totally. And it's kind of just like, how can you fight that? You know, how can you yeah. fight this like unimaginable weapon? In the same way, that, like the muskets are in this this unimaginable we- weapon. It's kind of just it's out there somewhere, mm-hmm. and they're shooting at you, and there's no there's no way to defend against it. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it 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 makes the tragedy all that more trag all the more tragic to think. I mean, there's these these great warriors who are just gun just gunned down so easily by men who are, you know, half half the half the 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 skill mm. and half the the honor as these others. I'm really curious about the Magnificent Seven. Now. Yeah, I haven't the... seen it. Which was, I learned in reading about Seven Samurai that when it was first released in America, that was the name of it, The Magnificent Seven, which... Seven Samurai? Yeah. Really? I didn't know that. When it was first put in, like, well, probably not wide release, but as wide a release it had in, I think it was 1957, when it was released in America, in its, like, two-hour version or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and then in 1960, there was an American remake, The Magnificent Seven which I'm, I don't really know much about. I'm curious about it though. Um, yeah, I definitely want to, uh, want to watch it in my Western class at purchase. We saw like clips from it, but I don't I mean, and it, it follows the same, like they're going around collecting skilled gunslingers and they're going to protect a town from, I think Mexican bandits. And I know that, I saw when James James Coburn plays the Kyuzo 
part. Mm. I'm assuming that's not the character's name in this version. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it, sh- I saw his death scene where he's shot, and then, but what's weird is he throws his gun, mm. and it's like, well, I mean, he's still shot by a gun, so it's I'm not sure what the significance of that is. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, it's the end of like lawlessness, but I mean, he was fighting bandits who. So he's being killed by lawlessness. So I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But maybe in context of the film itself, it'll all make sense. But they could have just been trying to like echo that great moment. Yeah. So yeah, you bring up the like the, the, the Western remake of Seven Samurai. And you brought up John Ford before. And that's one of the interesting things about Kurosawa, the Japanese samurai films, the American westerns, and John Ford, like how they they have this kind of like oddly symbiotic relationship where early on, I mean, John Ford was a huge influence on Akira Kurosawa, who later in life went on record as saying, like, John Ford was the greatest living director in the world. And, uh, What's what's interesting is later later on in in life, um, the two of them actually met, and John Ford had seen Kurosawa's work and was equally as uh, impressed with with his work as Kurosawa was with with Ford's. So much so that like people often think that like there there are certain elements from Seven Samurai that may have influenced John Ford's sort of great masterpiece, The Searchers. One of the things that was that was brought up in, in an essay I was reading was like, as an example, um, Tashir Mifune, when he's at the the grave site of the uh, of the first the first samurai who's fallen, um, Mifune kind of takes it hard and he's he's sitting by the grave for um, for a long time, and just the way that it, that that whole the, the the grave scene is shot. Like you know, with the graves up on the hill and and everything, it kind of is reminiscent of John Wayne's character in The Searchers dealing with the death of family and stuff. Yeah. And one thing that was interesting that I just found out today that I didn't know is that like they were actually planning on making a movie together, co-directing a movie, which kind of ties it back to what we were talking about earlier with co-directors. Yeah. Two great directors teaming up to make a movie. There in 1970. They were um, planning on making Tora 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 together. That would make sense. Um, ultimately, that didn't happen, and Tora 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 went on to be made by two other directors. I don't, I don't remember who directed it, but they still did like a jap, like a Japanese crew and an American crew. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember who they were. Yeah. So I mean, it's kind of unfortunate that that didn't come to pass. Yeah. Because you'd have this sort of like unique sort of moment in both of their filmographies where it's like, you know, John Ford's making his movies in in the in the thirties and forties, influencing Akira Kurosawa, who then goes on to make his films in the forties and fifties, which then influenced John Ford, and they're sort of just like feeding off each other and you reach this sort of center point in nineteen seventy where they both make this one movie together. You know, I, there's nothing else like that in film history that I can think of. And it's a kind of a shame that it didn't didn't happen. Oh, there's also the possibility that it's a good thing it didn't happen, so we can just fondly 
think of like the imaginary hypothetical film. Yeah. Instead of having to deal disaster. with like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't the know. Uh, on both of their filmographies. At that point, by 1970, I mean, John Ford hadn't made a film in, I think, Seven Women was 1966. And the only film he made after that was a documentary called Vietnam, Vietnam, hmm. which was sort of like a. I mean, he, he pro was Vietnam. old by 1970. Yeah. I mean, he was old by 1960. And, and like nearly <laughs> blind and just, you know. So, I mean, at that point, Kurosawa was still going strong. I mean... Um, yeah. Although he himself, he would have been in his, well, late 50s, I think. Yeah. I think he was born in like 1910 or some, somewhere around there. So, I mean, you would imagine like it would kind of be like more of a Kurosawa film with John Ford kind of like... You know, or it would have been one of those things where we're like, wow, the Japanese scenes are really incredible, right? And then like, <laughs> oh, the American ones are kind of like a TV show or something. Like, hmm. I don't know. And I haven't seen much late Ford, so I can't mm-hmm. really. But I mean, I haven't heard very positive. Th- I've seen Cheyenne Autumn, which I think is sixty four or sixty five, which is beautiful, but it's got a little bit of that like. 60s bloat to it that a lot of films had at the time like mm. where people were in the impression that like well if people are paying this much to see a movie we'd better make it a really long one right <laughs> so i don't know but i mean like just a couple years before that i mean not a lot of people are too crazy about donovan's reef i really enjoy donovan's reef i think it's funny and i haven't um, watched it actually. and then like the year before that 1962 man who shot liberty valance which mm-hmm. he could say was his last masterpiece right and he did several masterpieces yeah getting into kurosawa is what kind of like made me appreciate john ford's films more i think because on the surface like john ford's movies are they can be a little from a modern standpoint, a little harder to kind of like get into because they are, they're overly sentimental. The humor, I still have trouble with the humor. Mm -hmm. I, but I mean, I feel that same way about Shakespeare though. Whenever Shakespeare tries to be funny, I'm just like, Oh, come on. Hmm. But it's, and I think they are like in the same tier as artists really. Um, because like what they do do well is so much better than most other artists. Mm -hmm. I really want to watch more Kurosawa. Yeah, I mean, I I am ready to go on a Kurosawa binge. In the future, we should definitely do a whole Kurosawa month and do four or five movies. Per episode? (laughs) Per episode, yeah. (laughs) Get through his whole filmography. Uh, You mentioned earlier about uh, The Searchers sort of like being John Ford's kind of like recognized masterpiece. And I I do think it's great Mm -hmm. and I like it, but the like when it tries to be funny that's where like it just i can't get past that and there are great things in it and like some of the funny parts like the whole fight scene and the the guy the skip to my Lou guy mm-hmm. the, like my fiance or whatever he said <laughs> yeah. my fiance whatever he yeah. calls it um but like the whole scene with look the the wife like i mean the the, the indian wife yeah where they just like it's i think we're supposed to think it's hilarious that they're just like shoving this girl around and like knocking her down a hill and and it's just i and i it's a movie i've watched with like a classroom of people on at least two occasions and it's always kind of like there's gasps there's like holy shit what is 
It's almost like, have you seen The Quiet Man? It's like, he had done that. The, like, oh, uh, the John Wayne. Uh, um, like Irish Hero. comedy. Yeah. The Irish, yeah. yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a full out comedy. Mm-hmm. And it's just. I think to think it's funny, you have to have a completely different regard towards like gender relations than I have. And I just, it just does that whole film just does not work for me. Like, vi- you know, actually visually, because mm-hmm. as you, it's John Ford. Yeah. You turn the sound off. It's wow. Just sit back and enjoy that movie. <laughs> but like, just it's, it's rough going. And I feel like a lot of like modern audiences, I guess just, and maybe even at the time, but nobody talks about it anymore. Uh, just can't get past like the mistreatment of that female character in the searchers. I don't know. It's one of Eric Sheeran's favorite movies. Well, he hates women. <laughs> the Searchers is? Or? No, The Quiet Man. Oh, okay. Aaron Petty's mother. Uh, that was her favorite movie. <laughs> um. <laughs> and a lot of people must have liked it. It was nominated for Best Picture, which The Searchers was not. I don't think it was nominated for anything. Yeah, that's that's odd. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, with John Ford, there is the kind of, like, you have to take the good with the not-so-good. Yeah. And he was very, uh, very loyal to a group of actors who maybe about half of them were really good actors. <laughs> <laughs> but one of his favorite things was just getting all of his, like, friends out to a set. Right. And, uh, well, a location. Mm-hmm. And just basically camping out while making a movie. So, you know, if there's somebody he really wanted to hang out with on set, they weren't that great of an actor, we just have to deal with that. But, yeah, I mean, like, when I got into Kurosawa, it definitely made me appreciate John Ford's work more. Because you can see everything that is is really great about John Ford's stuff reflected into something like Seven Samurai which is just there's nothing about it that is uh, I, I have nothing negative to say about Seven Samurai I mean is there one thing that you could say that could have been better in the movie I think they should colorize it <laughs> <laughs> great idea I, yeah, yeah. I, no I wonder if anybody's ever tried maybe three D. You know, yeah, we need to have like a a colorized three D IMAX version of this movie right now. Yeah, they can they can you know, uh, computer generate fill in the make the aspect ratio wide, you know, so we can add in all the all the outside stuff, the stuff that you never saw. And they need to like dub in a new Philip Glass score. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, seven, it, it is a uh, it is a perfect movie. There aren't many that I, even my favorite movies, movies that I think are are fantastic, and I'll say are like the are are great achievements. Like, there's not many that I can say are perfect films. Would you put Citizen Kane in that group? Um, I haven't seen it in a while. It's you know, sometimes movies you watch them and you're like, "Holy shit, this is the best movie ever!" And then like a few years goes by and you're like, "Yeah, that was, that's that's good," but then you watch it again and you're like, "Holy shit, this is the best movie ever!" Citizen Kane is is great, but I mean, yeah, I don't know, I don't know if it's 
it doesn't give me that same kind of certain kind of feeling. I don't know what it is. It's definitely um, more cerebral than emotional. And like if a film hits all the right emotional buttons, then it's definitely gonna, mm-hmm. you know, affect you more. I mean, that's just how it works. What what are can you can you name a couple of films that you could think of just being like a near perfect film? Well, that's what like, I'm saying. Like, like I, just, I, what, I just like, don't I'm trying know. To think, like like I, like, I, it, like Seven Samurai just it yeah like you say like it just hits every possible level just just perfectly. It hits you on all all sides all fronts and. Uh, I can't think of another thing that's like that just has like you know Citizen Kane like it's a great movie but it, it, that doesn't have like this like the the kind of like the sense of humor that Seven Samurai has or just the um it was a very funny movie Citizen Kane yeah I mean I don't remember lot, it being very funny it's very witty and there's a lot of like the that sort of like you know, like early forties, like quick dialogue type mm-hmm. repartee. Maybe I should watch Citizen Kane again. I feel like I'm like defending Citizen Kane to somebody, which I don't think is necessary in this situation. <laughs> yeah, because I'm pretty sure you agree that it's at least a great movie. No, yeah, <laughs> I, just, I mean, I, I love Citizen Kane, and I'm not going to argue that it's perfect. I don't, I, I don't know if any film is perfect, because I mean, I personally, I at this point in my life, I think that. Uh, Renoir's The Rules of the Game is the greatest film ever made. But, I mean, that's right now. It could be something else mm-hmm. later. It could, maybe I watch Seven Samurai a couple more times. It grows on me. I think that is. But but I wouldn't say Rules of the Game is perfect. I think Seven Samurai just encapsulates everything that a movie should or could be. Like it plays, it's like the, a perfectly entertaining movie and a perfectly moving, emotionally moving movie. <laughs> I really wish you guys could uh, visually see Max right now. He has just gotten down on one knee and taken out a, a little box. He's opening it. Oh my God, there's a diamond ring in there and he is holding it towards his Seven Samurai DVD. <laughs> Will you marry me? This is a historic day for talking movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just have no, I, I just can't say enough good things about it. I definitely like when it ended and the credits were rolling, or not rolling. I don't know, but um, the credits started. It just, I did have that feeling, mm-hmm. and there's, I love when, like, I got that. It's the same feeling I had the first time I saw. Uh, do the right thing which i think is a great film i don't know if i'd call it one of the greatest films it's far from a perfect film but like it's it had that rush and um mm-hmm. a few months ago when i watched inglorious bastards i had that same rush mm-hmm. or a movie just has its way with you yeah you know and just leaves you wanting more <laughs> it is like it's a, a type of like manipulation and i love when films manipulate me which is i mean that's I, all the movies are is just like it's manipulating you the audience into feeling something from just seeing a succession of images and hearing sounds it's amazing to think that this is all 
it's all optical illusions. Like, yeah, that's, that's all literally it, all. Like movie, we're we're are, so yeah. moved by these things. It's just like it's just trickery. Yeah, it's just science. And that's why yeah. I mean, like it's it's weird. Like I I went to film school. Like I know how movies are made. Yeah. I know like I you know you can watch any number of like behind the scenes documentaries on all DVDs. You can go on the internet and read about how anything was made, but like for some reason there are just so, like certain movies that like. Like if you see you, you see a behind the scenes photo of Seven Samurai and somehow like my brain can't wrap itself around it because it's like, wait a minute, it's not real? Like everybody is like in in costume and everything and then there's just like some guy passing out cups of coffee or something. Yeah. And <laughs> like... it's just like that no, that that's not right. Like it's it's not meant to be. Because the movie just like I was saying before, it's just like is its own thing like it wasn't made by human hands it is a moment in time that actually happened like it just i don't know it's it's so hard to explain but i all i can say is that i i just love seven samurai seven samurai and i are just good friends <laughs> <laughs> no i'm i feel like i'm almost there i don't know i just I, d- I really want to watch it again. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, like, I, w- I wouldn't have probably been able to say all or feel all the things that I am right now, like, the first after watching it for the first time. Mm. Like, I loved it the first time. I was like, wow, that was a great movie. But I don't know. Coming back to it, I'm just, like, I'm just flabbergasted at just everything about it. Simple as that. everything about it is just it's perfect. I hope that um this doesn't have like a the opposite effect of when we watched uh Cut Third Island mm. and like everything after that. It's like wow, this movie seems really good. <laughs> like John Carter is a masterpiece. The Adventures of Pluto Nash is really great, but it's it's just just because it's not Cut Third Island. And now it's like well, this movie's okay, but yeah. it's, it's no it's Seven no Samurai. Samurai. <laughs> yeah, it's an un. I mean, Seven Samurai is is it? It's up. It's on the peak. It's on the Mount Olympus of of films. You know, it's as high as you can go. It's the. It is the highest achievement. It is like there are movies that are up there. It's just like you cannot make a movie that is better than that. It's like it's reached this this the speed of light. You can't go beyond it. It's as far as as cinema will ever go, and few ever catch up to it. I think you're overdoing it now. <laughs> I think like at, then everyone should just stop now. I guess that like <laughs> I don't know. Well, no, I mean there's room on Mount Olympus. <laughs> okay, but I mean, it... but that's the highest peak of the mountain. Then so like I don't know. Joel Schumacher's been doing some interesting things. <laughs> I don't know. If, yeah. it, I guess if, if you know, it, everyone has their own opinions and their own thoughts about it, but my personal Mount Olympus, Seven Samurai's up there. And there are other movies up there, too. But I can't even think about them right now. <laughs> <laughs> Like, 2001 A Space Odyssey, for me, is up there. Not for me at the moment. 
and um I've never really been able to get into that movie. Mm. I can admire it's like I admire it on a technical level, but I can't engage with it. Yeah, I mean that's a lot of people have that kind of issue with it because it is it's it is somewhat of an impenetrable movie. Yeah. And people like people often say like, "Oh, well, it's, you know, it's it's Kubrick, so it's like it's cold. You're not supposed to really engage with it." And it's like, "Well, I engage with The Shining mm-hmm. and Eyes Wide Shut and Paths of Glory." So I like I don't, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I wouldn't say that like 2001 is a perfect movie. For me personally, like I I love it and like it's the kind of movie that I don't think movies can get much better than 2001 Space Odyssey. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I guess it's it's not perfect in the way that Seven Samurai is. <laughs> I mean, now I'm just fa- like just fawning <laughs> over it and it's not even worth talking about it anymore. The great thing, well, obviously not the great thing. One of the great things about great films, mm-hmm. uh, like these top tier films, um, like to get back to something that I joked about a few minutes ago, is like they don't make all other films look like shit. They actually almost like open in, in up rich, the other films. Yeah, exactly. They help you see things in other films that you wouldn't even be looking for mm-hmm. otherwise. It's like when. I would mention to people like years ago that I wanted to study film and that I liked reading about film and I wanted to go to school for film. They'd be like, oh, but you know, if you study films, like you're not going to enjoy, you know, you're going to get spoiled or you're going to only like these like elite. And it's like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. If it hadn't been for like things I read about in, in school, like, or even on my own, just about film and like different ways to read, like there are films I would not have been able to enjoy. Yeah, for sure. Because you can watch a shitty film to a certain extent. And, like, there are other things you can look for in it that you might not have known about earlier. There are things to think about. There are different, like, planes of the viewing experience that you can travel on. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I, I don't know, I just... I feel like after Seven Samurai, I kind of want to go into... I'm not a big action movie fan. But I'm... I want to, like, go into them with Seven Samurai on my back, mm-hmm. you know? And just, like, enter them through that movie. And just look for hints of Seven Samurai in there. See things that have come from it. Mm-hmm. Where should I start? Oh, geez, I don't know. Okay, you don't have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, a good place to start would be other Kurosawa movies. I mean, I'm I'm in the mind right now to just, like, watch something. Watch a Kurosawa. One thing, like, you know, if, if you are, if you, Tim, or the listener, are interested in watching more Kurosawa films, this is something that I meant to bring up earlier, but I kind of forgot about. It's a little little point um but the the way that kurosawa directed actors one of the things he would he would have them do is kind of like give them some sort of like a physical trait or like not like a like a tick not so much like a tick but like a um like a 
a move or a mannerism that they would that the that that the actor would repeat in the movie. And once you know that, like you can kind of look at actors in his other movies and be like, oh, okay, that's his that's his little mannerism in this movie. Like in Seven Samurai, Tashir Mifune is always scratching his neck. Okay. And he's always he's like aggressively scratching his neck, and sometimes he's scratching his leg. He's always scratching. And um, Takashi Shimura, the the elder samurai, you know, he shaves his head at the beginning of the movie. And for the rest of the movie, he's always doing this. He's always running his hand along his bald head from front to back. And that was like something like, and I think he would go to the actor and say like, you know, just figure something out for yourself that, and, and just do it. And the actors would kind of come up with it themselves and it's it informs their character in some weird way is this a device you've used um not that i can think of off the top of my head but it's definitely something that i am very cognizant of um and going forward like i mean it's something that i have thought about like that would be that's a good it's a good trick well, yeah, I mean, in some movies you'll see, like, sometimes it's, like, the, them stroking their chin or their beard, or, um, I think in, in, um, Rashomon, Tashir Mifune is always, he's swatting flies, like, swatting mosquitoes. He's always, like, slapping himself. <laughs> um, there's always these weird little things that they do. So, there's something, there's a little, I, I guess it's, it's kind of like an Easter egg, a little Easter egg to look out for <laughs> when you're watching Kurosawa movies. So, as not to make the runtime of this podcast equal the length of Seven Samurai, we should probably wrap it up here. And hopefully, as you say, the the next movie we watch won't be, uh, we won't detract anything from it from just watching such a great movie. But I don't think we'll have much of a problem with that, because this is another movie that I, it's one of my favorite movies. It's, um... As far as hand-drawn animation goes, there, it kind of it came out at a time that was sort of like it was at the peak of that art form, because since then it uh, computers have edged their way more and more into animation, and until now, where I mean, hand-drawn feature films are basically extinct. This came right. It came out right at a time when. Uh, they were still going strong, and it was probably at their at the strongest. Um, it's an anime film, our first animated movie that we'll talk about, or a cartoon, if you will. <laughs> Akira, not Kurosawa. Oh, just called Akira. I'm excited to rewatch it because it's one that I watched on TV maybe 20 years ago. Hmm. And my memories are very vague. Yeah, it's it's a movie that I've seen probably about you know three or four times. Um, it's one that I like to. I wind up just kind of coming back to time and again. Um, I got into it through Chris, and I guess more specifically John, who's Chris's older brother. And it's kind of like you know when I was a kid, John was kind of like seemed a lot older you know because when you're younger age difference is just larger and so he was always like showing chris these like seemingly adult 
things growing up stuff. It is like six years difference between them or something, right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Which that's huge for kids. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Chris knew about Akira. It was the first anime movie that I'd ever seen, or anime like I don't think I'd ever seen like a TV show or anything. It just you know it looked nothing like it looked like nothing I had ever seen before. I mean, you know, Akira really isn't for kids. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've since come to really appreciate it, and um, yeah, I'm excited to watch it again. I just got it on Blu-ray, so I've already checked it out, and it looks fantastic. So we'll uh, we'll have to watch that and uh, talk about it. All right. Next time. So thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time. <laughs>